0: Welcome to the Centre for Myth, Cosmology and the Sacreds podcast with your hosts, Dr Louise Livingstone, Mary Atwood and Dr Angela Boss. In a time when education has fallen under a reductionist view, we offer a space in which wisdom, imagination, intuition and self-knowledge come together and invite you to participate in a mystery school for our challenging times in order to heal the age-old split between mind, soul and body, divinity, humanity and nature. Bringing you insightful conversation and world class speakers, we explore the arts and humanities, eco consciousness, Goethean inquiry, heart sense, myth and symbolic cosmology, transpersonal psychology, and much, much more. We hope you enjoy this podcast. So a warm welcome to you uh, to the Center for Myth, Cosmology and the Sacred for the first part in the sh- our Shakespeare series, which is running over three consecutive Sundays. And uh, my name's Louise Livingstone. I'm here with Mary Atwood and Angela Voss, We're the co-founders of the Center for Myth, Cosmology and the Sacred. So it's lovely to have you here with us. And I'm now going to pass to our friend and colleague, Jeffrey Cornelius, who's going to introduce Joseph to us today. Thanks, Jeffrey.
1: Thank you very much, Louise, and, and thank you, Joseph, and thank you all of you for being here. It, it's really an honor for me to introduce Joseph. Um, I think of the group of us here, me and, um, and Angela, are probably uh, two actual people who were directly taught by Joseph, so we go way back. And I, I did want to just talk to you a moment in introducing Joseph about these remarkable intellectual and spiritual transmissions that occur because um, in some ways Joseph might not be pleased to be called this, but uh, he's in some senses a grandfather or at least a grand uncle of the current myth cosmology and the sacred, he really is, because I'll just give you a bit of that history. I first came across Joseph when I um, was fortunate enough to enroll on a absolutely groundbreaking MA at uh, Kent University, MA in Mysticism and Religious Experience. This was run by a holy trinity of marvellous characters called um, Peter Moore, Leon Schlam, and Joseph, Joseph Milne. And uh, it was an extraordinary programme, and it really had that spirit of taking seriously the materials we're looking at, not as from a distance, but as pertinent and relevant to each of us here and now. And that's what marks out this type of work we all do, I think. Well, out of that sprang first a module and then ultimately its own MA the MA um, in Myth and in Cosmology and Divination, MA Cosmology and Divination, that ran gloriously, but for a short period at Kent. And um, these subjects only have a transitory life. They have a half or quarter life in the academy, these subjects. They, they soon get squashed when it's realised what they're actually doing on these programmes. So we did have a very fertile period and we were informed I would say by the background we had and the support from the um, mysticism MA and uh, that then led eventually after a a jump to the MA program at Canterbury Christ Church that that, uh, has lately been swamped and closed down by the university as as these things are and then on to the centre itself where we are all now so you see the transmission that occurs And I won't go on at great length that I couldn't, I mustn't take up the time, but I'd like to just explain to you my own involvement here. Um, I'd never conceived of the possibility of, I'd I'd come across many ways of thought in my um, life, but I'd never conceived of the importance, the philosophical importance of Christianity and the medieval tradition. And it was Joseph who first opened my eyes to this extraordinary wealth and depth of medieval learning and understanding and wisdom and Joseph is especially strong on the texts of the mystics um, in Christianity, especially moving and, and exciting on this material. And it's always excited me since since Joseph's inspiration. And I think that you'll find with all of Joseph's work, when he writes, it's with and when he speaks, it's with such class, clarity and lucidity, so simply. And I do recommend to you his books, um, The Ground of Being. Foundations of Christian Mysticism and his Metaphysics and the Cosmic Order and the latest book of his that I haven't read, The Lost Vision of Nature. Now in these texts, you'll find Joseph writes with such simplicity on very complex subjects and without reams and reams of uh, subsidiary footnotes, but with tremendous learning behind it. So it's for your clarity and lucidity, Joseph, that we thank you so much as a teacher and as a grandfather of our current gathering uh, welcome to you. welcome to you very much. Thank you, Joseph. Thank
2: you, Jeffrey. <laughs> That's very kind of you, and uh, you've also been inspirational all these years as well, so <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks Joseph.
2: <laughs> so I'm going to launch now into my prepared text or uh, hope that you can sort of bear with me and not get too. Board, or else enjoy a nice snooze, if that would, would please you. So, uh, yeah, the theme is the law of nature and the law of drama. So I'm linking these, uh, these realms of law together. That's what I hope to unfold in what follows. So beginning, in the opening scene of any Shakespearean play, we get an immediate sense of something unfolding which must ultimately be resolved. This is the case in the comedies and the tragedies. In the opening scenes of Hamlet or King Lear, for example, there is a sense of foreboding, of something dark that is about to play itself out. In these plays, it is presented before the main protagonists enter In the comedies, by contrast, although they also begin in some conflict or choice between alternative fates, they have a sense of light and hope that all shall be well by the end of the play. As the plays unfold, the essential conflicts intensify and resolution more and more points in one way or another this unfolding of conflict and impending resolution is what engages us in the plays or gives us a sense of commitment to what must unfold. unfold. We have an innate sense of form which lies at the heart of what the philosophers call the narrative sense. The sense that grasps things as coherent events in our own lives, uh, we have a sense of narrative and our own engagement with history, with the history of our times also has a narrative sense, a sense of concern for what is to be, an anticipation of what, the, of what future destiny holds. And this narrative sense can be traced back through all history and all cultures. It is foundational to the human way of apprehending existence. The ancient myths are stories of the unfoldment of things, of first events, of how things came to be and how they are to be. A society is held together through its founding myths and the histories it honours and the institutions it holds as defining its way of life. All this I wish to suggest is present in Shakespeare's plays, is the key to all drama. And yet Shakespeare seems to embody it more, embody it more fully than any other. With Shakespeare, the nature of the characters and the world they find themselves in and the events that evolve make a single fabric. The plays are not dramatizations of ideas about human beings or concepts of human psychology or of ethical principles. Although one may find certain truisms in Shakespeare, they are incidental and do not explain anything. They are meaningful only in the context in which they are spoken and by whom they are spoken. So the narrative sense, the sense of form in events and the way characters are taken, taken up in them is prior to conceptual explanation of things. The great myths of the creation of the world are prior to scientific theories because they are more primordial, because they are a more primordial mode of apprehending the mystery of existence. The Bible, for example, is entirely a telling of events. It has no theories of anything, not even a conception of nature. Speaks in in the primordial symbols of the relation of the realms of heaven and earth. Theology and contemplation spring from this. But not scientific or rational explanation. So there is an obvious connection here between Shakespeare and the Bible. In a Shakespearean play, different realms coexist and there is an interplay between them. First of all, there is what we might call the cosmos of each drama. It is no accident that the famous theater uh, was named The Globe, For the stage of drama is the cosmos itself. In Greek drama, the cosmos was presented itself in the chorus or in the fates, while Shakespeare presents the cosmos as the pattern of the world in which things must inevitably befall, befall. There is, behind the visible scenes, a providence or a lawfulness, which we sense must ultimately determine all destinies, but not according to a determinism, but according to the choices and commitments of the characters. So consider, for example, the opening scene of the two gentlemen of Verona, here, Valentine commits himself to a quest for honour in the world, while his friend Proteus commits himself to the love of Julia. Proteus cannot see the point of Valentine's quest for honour through worldly adventure, while Valentine cannot see the point of Proteus as remaining at home for the sake of love. Their different commitments or quests Shape their conception of the world. So the world in which they each move is the world they each see the world as each see it. But the actual world is not as either see it. Or rather, each sees a half which the other does not see. So homekeeping love and honour uh, and honour-seeking adventure are in truth not contraries, but must be conjoined. We may be sure that Providence will intervene in both their plans and compel Proteus to combine love with honour and Valentine to combine honour with love. And that is how how the play finally resolves. It is an easy and delightful early play yet it has the elements of the later more complex plays. Through their specific commitments, Proteus and Valentine will be compelled by the lawful order of the world to learn what they initially failed to see. And this learning process will involve an inner transformation of character and a new capacity for outward action. Their respective beloveds, Julia and Sylvia, themselves embodying different aspects of love and honour, will complete them. So in the love comedies, love and virtue must be united. And that's a theme that runs through all the love comedies. Love and virtue must come together. The tragedies likewise trace the unfoldment of commitments made by the protagonists at the outset of a play. Take, for example, Richard III, who, finding himself in a time of peace and the delights of courtly life, cannot partake of such enjoyments because of his deformity. And so he makes a great resolution in his opening soliloquy soliloquy of the play. And this is what he says. And notice what what he's saying here is an assessment of his situation and a resolution that that will then lead to the unfolding of the play. This is what he says. I, that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time, into this breathing world scarce half made up, and that so so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. Why I, in this sweet piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time, unless to spy my shadow in the sun and descant on my own deformity and wherefore, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these farewell spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Plots have I laid, inductions dangerous by drunken prophecies, libels and dreams to set my brother Clarence and the king in deadly hate, the one against the other. And if King Edward be as true and just as I am subtle, false and treacherous, this day should Clarence closely be mewed up about a prophecy which says that, G, that is Gloucester, of Edward's heirs, the murderer shall be. Now, what about that for a resolution? It says, in motion are dark and dreadful events. But note that Richard puts the blame of his condition on nature, cheated of feature by dissembling nature. This is a colossal accusation. Can nature be thus so false and cruel? Is there a moral aspect to nature? Is not nature accountable for her works? Whatever the answer to such questions, nature has dealt Richard a poor portion. And from this, he will deal a great blow upon the kingdom of England by setting deadly hate between his brother and the king he will become subtle, false, and treacherous, as though in vengeance upon nature being thus with him. His design for action is therefore determined by his interpretation of nature, and implicitly in the order of the cosmos. He has no reason to be an enemy of his brother or the king, say that nature has made him incapable of partaking in the soft delights of music and courtly life now that war has passed. Such order, personified in the lascivious lascivious pleasing of a lute, is now his enemy and dissembling his companion. Nature Having played false with him, he will be false to life. Now there's some resolution. Now it would be all too easy to psychologize Richard's condition, but that would be to divorce him from the unfolding drama. This new state of peace the court is enjoying lies in peril and all are are oblivious of the temporality of peace, and therefore blind to richer, subtle, false treachery. The world itself cannot rest from troubles, and the delights of peacetime can blind the kingdom to the ever-present threat of chaos and disorder. All the characters of this play are bound up with the curse Richard has felt himself provoked by nature's dealings to set upon. So This is important. In every play, all participants are implicated in the web of events, from king to humble peasant. There are deeper connections in events with the seeds of time and destiny grow beneath the outer appearance of things. Nature has created the grossly deformed Richard, and no amount of explaining away changes that. Shakespeare's plays, just like the ancient Greek tragedies, defy all such explaining away. And as a history play, it is also a myth of England, where the kingdom the kingdom is itself a symbolic person of the play, just as Denmark is in Hamlet. Kingdoms have destinies, and everyone is bound in some way to that destiny. This is why psychological profiles of the characters tells us very little. Forces are at work, forces were at work, before they were born. So, true drama holds up a mirror to the paradoxical nature of the human condition. It always presents existence as a challenge, and the human being is the mortal chosen by the gods to suffer challenge. This is just as true in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is what drama embodies without compromise. The world is not a blank canvas upon which human desires play out. Curiously, very often in Shakespeare, it is the simple folk who see what is truly happening, while the mighty folk walk in peril and uncertainty. This is the case in Richard III, and in King Lear. In some way, the simple folk have a clear sense of the workings of heaven and earth that may lie beyond their capacity for speech. They also know that a mysterious providence works through all events. Unlike the high people, they know the art of waiting. They endure the comings and goings of mighty lords and kings in patience. It's always worth looking at the simple folk in Shakespeare's plays. So this brings us to a major theme often present in Shakespeare, the the juxtaposition of the law of nature and of human positive law a concern of Shakespeare's times in the debates on natural law and the role of positive law. It is the time of Richard Hooker and his laws of ecclesiastical polity and of the great political uh, and jurist Edward Coke. The inns of court were a place of constant debate about the nature of law and most interestingly, the study of law was seen as mastering a rhetorical art, and the courts where trials took place were regarded as a form of theatre. The lawyers used the now very curious expression "artificial reason" for the discernments and arguments of law. Law students frequented the Globe Theatre as a given part of their training. And Shakespeare himself is perfectly aware of the convoluted arguments of clever lawyers, as he is of the obsessions of grammarians. It is very interesting that his way of mocking them makes us laugh. This is a subtle and forgiving rhetoric. this curious thing called artificial reason can either connect through speech with the world of real things or wholly dissociate itself from reality and speak only to itself. It follows from this that speech in Shakespeare always embodies the relationship with the speaker to the world. Or to put that another way, the way each character relates to language corresponds with the way they relate to the world. How they speak, so they see. So this correspondence is very clear in the soliloquy quoted from Richard III. It is so clear that when we hear his words, we feel his physical comportment to the world as though we could adopt it ourselves. Or at least I feel that because I can, I can assume wickedness. So, this realm of comportment to the world is something that we can easily overlook in our age. In his soliloquy, Richard III has made a resolution a commitment, has dedicated himself to a course of action. In these moments of dedication, a protagonist places himself under a law. Often, in soliloquies, some power is invoked. The stars, the heavens, the gods, or nature, or else a curse is made against the powers of heaven, the gods or nature, <clears throat> as we see repeatedly in King Lear. To call upon the heavens for help or to make a resolution in the name of the heavens brings about a relation to the world which opens up new possibilities of action. It aligns the soul with the path of nature which normally lie hidden. Prayer, of course, is the supreme example of this. The essence lies in the act of dedication. Now we gain an insight into Shakespeare's characters once we see what they are dedicated to or what they give allegiance to. At the deepest level, every action has a dedication underlying it, a commitment of being, towards held to be of greatest worth, even if that means taking an evil for a good. Often, these dedications articulated are articulated in oaths. For example, in King Lear, when Edmund, the illegitimate son of Gloucester, takes an oath to serve nature, though he sees nature very differently uh, to that of Richard III. It is worth considering his words here as he protests against his illegitimacy. So Edmund says in his soliloquy, Thou, nature, art my goddess. To thy law my service is bound. Wherefore?" should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nation, nations to, to deprive me? That's the end of that quote. Let me remark on that. Edmund, Edmund's complaint is that Edgar, his legitimate brother, should receive, the, receive Gloucester's inheritance merely by the fact He was born 14 months before him and made legitimate merely by the curiosity of nations, that is, by arbitrary human laws and customs. Nature, in his view, makes no distinction between legitimate or illegitimate, between nobly born or bastard born. Not only that, By cunning device, illegitimate can be made legitimate. So, in his words, he says, fine word, legitimate. Well, my illegitimate. If If this letter speed and my invention thrive, Edmund the base shall top legitimate. I grow, I prosper. Now, gods, Stand up for bastards. Always enjoy using that word. Now, a whole host of things are compacted here, which are worth drawing out. First, are the laws and customs of nations arbitrary in essence? So that's a question. Are the laws and customs of nations arbitrary in essence? And can they therefore be suspended? superseded by the goddess nature or is there some true alignment between the law of nature and customs and positive laws or ought there to be such an alignment these questions run through the whole play Edmund's plan to disrupt the line of inheritance mirrors King Lear's plan to abdicate his inheritance of kingship, which he has just enacted in the previous scene. The chaos brought about in this play lies in the various protagonists seeking to align themselves outside the true order of things, both in terms of custom and in terms of nature. Thus, we see a sequence of false allegiances. Edmund's invention can no more succeed than Lear's division of the kingdom or the tyranny of his daughters, Goneril and Reagan. Is the play about the disruption of the law of inheritance, which has been decreed in the cosmos. Law and convention clash. Now these alignments or dedications concern the way shakespeare's characters act in the world each dedication is an outward comportment that is why they cannot be reduced to psychological motives the inner life of shakespeare's characters corresponds with that outer life with their deeds Words and deeds are actions that bring about consequences. It is these consequences that drama traces. As we said earlier, drama is the exploration of the laws that govern events. Resolutions are made, deeds are performed, and lawful consequences follow. Now, in a certain sense, this is deterministic. Every deed has a necessary fate. There is no liberal freedom in our modern sense, and from a Shakespearean perspective, as also from a Greek, from the Greek tragedians' perspective, liberal freedom is a fiction. We misread Shakespeare if we read him from that perspective. On the contrary, every deed sets in motion a series of laws with a determinate end. A dedication is an act of placing oneself under a law. If a dedication is made to love or honor or as a vow, then one places oneself under the protection of law law becomes a kind of guardian. Our narrative sense, which grasps the coherence of unfolding events, already apprehends this. For example, we still speak of having a good conscience, meaning our actions stand well before justice. And that is why a story or drama engages us. this can be made clearer if we take to account the ancient understanding of the cosmos, which has different realms of order. In the obvious sense, there is the order of the individual, the order of society and the order of the cosmos itself. In ancient societies, these three realms of order were all simply given and usually expressed in myths and in seasonal rites. They were also very much present in the medieval Christian worldview, expressed in a hierarchy reaching down from God to inanimate matter. This was given very precise formulation in the tradition of natural law in this formulation there are four orders of law the first there is the eternal law the law in the mind of god which contains all created things in their primordial eternity second there is a, is that there is the natural law the law sustaining guiding the natural world to its proper end or perfection this law is an image of the eternal law, impressed upon the created order. It is also the moral law implanted in every human soul, and which shows itself where reason shapes action to the good. As St. Paul says, it is, written, it is the law written in every heart. Third, there is human law, or positive law, the laws made by societies for their governments. Fourth, there is the divine law, the law revealed in scripture. It is understood that each of these levels of law is informed by the level above it. This means in particular that human positive laws should align with the natural law. And that any positive law which clashed with the natural law was not actually a law and should not be called a law. So this relation between natural law and human positive law is given full expression by Richard Hooker, who we mentioned earlier, and who influenced the English constitution at that time. The important thing to understand about these orders of law is that they are directed toward the good of all things. The good of each being is the full flourishing of its nature in harmony with all other beings. Another way of saying this is that all things are guided by providence towards their natural perfection. Ultimately. All beings desire mystical union with God. That is their true end and, and calling in the Christian vision of natural law. Now, <clears throat> these abstract metaphysical formulations of law are not going to inspire the poets. I mention them here because it, I mention it here because they are present in Shakespeare. But in symbolic form, in the powers and properties of nature, of the gods or of ghosts or witches, as well as mythical creatures such as the fairies in A Midsummer Night's Dream. In drama, the invisible is made visible. A disruption in the human order is manifest in storms and floods or strange aberrations in the natural order, such as when the horses eat each other after the murder of Duncan in Macbeth. It is discerned in the configurations of the stars and in the signs and omens of the times. Human deeds and cosmic events are bound together The greatest affront to the law is to declare oneself the law, as Goneril does uh, to Albany her husband in Act Five of King Lear. The laws are mine, not thine, she declares, to which Albany responds, most monstrous. She speaks no further word in the play. And is shortly afterward found dead. To usurp the law, to make one's own will the law, is an act of self-destruction. It is not only forbidden in the order of things, it is ultimately impossible. But while natural law is not presented abstractly by Shakespeare, the question of justice and a higher law is often represented. For example, in the famous speech of Portia on the quality of mercy not being strained, where Sherlock has used the law for vengeance, or as as lex, was it Lex Telonius, as the law books call it? That is to say, to use the law as an act of vengeance is the greatest way of breaking the law. But the most frequent representations of different orders of law are between the city or court and a forest or some desert place. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, for example, the harsh law of Athens, which places a paternal will above love is overcome in the magical realm of the forest, where love can transform poor human law into pure goodness. Or again, in the comedy of errors, where Draconian law of Ephesus, pronounces death on all visitors from Syracuse, is finally repealed. Justice, however, is an ambiguous thing, and it is worth observing that modern jurisprudence is very hesitant to define it. Plato's Republic remains one of the most penetrating inquiries into the nature of justice. In modern positive law, there is scrupulous avoidance of identifying law with morality of any kind. Modernity has no cosmos to situate law or justice in. One of Shakespeare's plays that deals with with the profound difficulties of distinction between the legal and the just is Measure for Measure, the only play that directly refers to the Bible in its title. Where the Bible says, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measures ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. That is the manner in which Angelo conceives the law when made deputy to the Duke of Vienna. He applies law rigorously, yet seeks to to commit the very crime of adultery he has condemned Claudius for. The Duke, in disguise, watching over all that befalls in Vienna in his absence, contrives to trick Angelo into, his a- into an assignation with his true beloved with whom he broke his vow <clears throat> to marry. When exposed, For his crimes at the end for his crime at the end of the play, he requests death and no mercy, applying to himself the same blind adherence to the letter of the law he had applied to others. It is only when the Duke, throwing off his disguise as a friar, exercises his higher authority and shows mercy to Angelo. Angelo realises that law and justice have a deeper aim than meeting out measure for measure. This is a much unappreciated play, yet it shows with enormous clarity that justice is not an end in itself. In a profoundly Christian sense, the law is not to be laid aside but fulfilled in a higher aim of transformation of the soul and even transformation of the world. The law is a guide of things to their true ends, not an end in itself. Yet transformation is fulfilled through following justice. Not only is Angelo redeemed through mercy, the vow of marriage he had broken with Mariana now returns at the end of the play and is fulfilled. Angelo's suitability as deputy to the Duke at the beginning of the play lies in question because he had broken his vow of love. The breaking of vows has consequences just as the as dedication of action has consequences. Words are deeds, what is measured out in them will be measured back. Yet in this play, as so often in Shakespeare, a just dessert is never a true resolution of a drama. It is in fact dramatically unsatisfactory. Modern revenge dramas are never satisfactory. Our narrative sense demands more than an equaling out of things. Somehow, a wrong has to be transmuted into a greater good to bring about full resolution. And this Shakespeare always accomplishes. On this point, is worth recalling a mark in Plato's laws. His final dialogue. Here the Athenian stranger says that one should never rejoice when a bad person suffers a misfortune. While it may seem that fortune has dealt them what they deserve, it will not improve them. Rather, it will make them worse and lead them into bad company. And this in turn will harm the whole society. On the contrary, such people should be reformed and learn the art of virtuous action, thus liberating them from the evil consequences of their actions. That would be real justice. Justice aims at bringing individuals and society into harmony and perfection. And the art of of administering justice Includes the art of restoration of harmony. This is a special skill of the the Duke in measure for measure. Now, drawing to a close. So, commentators, Shakespearean critics, pass harsh judgment on this play, finding fault with the Duke, Angelo, and with Juliet. But this is to forget that Vienna needs to be reformed and that this, and it is this that the Duke sets about to accomplish by making a moral absolutist, Angelo, his deputy. Once Vienna gets a taste of absolute justice in the harsh letter of the law, it will be open to a higher good and Angelo himself must experience the harshness of the law in order to realise justice is not not attained that way. The Duke, who appears to have ruled too leniently, remedies things by allowing Angelo's harsh interpretation of law to rule for a time. Then, once the lesson is learned, mercy and gentleness are seen to be a better rule an absolute justice. But this is known only through the transformation of Angelo and implicitly uh, throughout Vienna. Measure for measure is often misjudged because this transformation of character is missed as the essential point of the drama. In failing to see this, the same harsh judgment is passed on Angelo, which we reject in him, passing on Claudio. In this way, Shakespeare brings his audience into a quite disturbing reflection on the question of justice. Now drawing to a close now. So So this brings us to a point we made earlier. At the opening of each play, sets in motion what is to befall. So the first words of the Duke to Aeschylus give us the key to the play. This is what the Duke says. Of government, the properties unfold, which seem in me to affect speech and discourse. Since I am put to know that your science exceeds in that the list of all advice my strength can give you. then no more remains but that to your sufficiency as your worth is able, and let them work. The nature of our people, our cities, institutions, and the terms for common justice, you are as pregnant in as art and practice has enriched any that we remember. There's a very interesting opening speech. Earlier we noted, that lawyers and students of law came to the Globe Theatre. Here is a speech they would recognize the seeds of, that good government lies in the science, art, and practice of right speech and discourse. It is straight from Aristotle and Cicero. Just rule is right speech and good discourse. It is a rhetorical art. It persuades the good and the just, even though the good and the just lie beyond our ordinary grasp. Laws are secondary to this. According to Plato, positive laws are meant to educate the citizen and lead them, not to mere obedience, but to virtue. And this is precisely what the Duke's opening words ultimately attain, not to re-establish into obedience to the law. Aeschylus has already grasped this from the Duke's opening speech. When Angelo compiles the execution of Claudius, Aeschylus straightway proclaims a higher truth. Well, heaven forgive him and forgive us all. Some rise by sin and some by virtue fall. Now, there's a thought. If Angelo had comprehended these words of true governance from Aeschylus, he would have changed his mind. But his commitment to the harsh letter of the law makes him deaf to such words until finally he is shown mercy by the Duke and brought back to his bond of love. And the redemption of Angelo is at once the restoration of Vienna, as we have said. The play has come full circle, but arrived on a higher plane. Aristotle says that drama conveys more truth than history. This is because the human imagination has the capacity to grasp everything as a whole. It is at once the ground of the narrative sense, the sense of law, and of virtue or conscience. It holds the rational and the good together. In ancient societies, this was understood as the realm of the gods, because the imagination holds together all realms at once, the universal and the particular, the inner and the outer, the eternal and the temporal, the sacred and the profane. It is the relations and interconnections between these realms that grounds the plays of Shakespeare. They are at once cosmic and individual. So the link between the cosmos and the individual protagonists lies in the commitments, allegiances, dedications, and vows and bonds they make. This is too easily mistaken for mere passions, as though characters are driven by emotions. But in human nature, decisions of commitment precede passion. It is what the mind gives allegiance to that is decisive, and what Shakespeare is concerned to trace. If we listen carefully to the soliloquies of the protagonists, we see that they arrive at a resolution, a commitment, and an allegiance. We saw that in the opening soliloquy of Richard III, and in Edmund in King Lear. And we, and we sense that nature and the gods hear these resolutions, and that powers and destinies are set in motion by them. But nature and the gods seek to preserve the soul from peril when it is misguided when a misguided resolution is made. And so we find even at the end of any tragedy a moment of redemption, an acceptance of the divine order that had been defied. Perhaps we might say that the great law of the cosmos is that the human soul cannot be permitted to deceive itself. It cannot take the false for true or evil for good. This is what Macbeth, Othello and Leo finally realise and that realisation saves them from damnation. The ultimate judge is heaven, the realm of transformative grace. From a purely dramatic point of view, the world has come into being not to bring about destruction, but rather to draw things to their perfection. The imagination already knows this, and so it looks upon the tragic protagonists with compassion. In the same way, it looks upon the resolution of the comedies with joy. Thank you so much for listening to this
0: podcast. We do hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about our work, sign up to our newsletter or to support us by donating, please visit www.myth cosmology